1: Good evening and welcome to the Bose No Show from beautiful downtown Elmira, Oregon. And it's another beautiful fall day in the Pacific Northwest here. Uh, just enjoying gorgeous colors on some of the trees outside and beautiful weather today. Made a quick trip down to Florence for lunch. Had lunch at, at the the uh, Bridge
0: uh, Bridge Market, I think is the name of the. Is that the name of the restaurant? Mm-hmm. I'm trying to trying to remember.
1: But <laughs> had a lovely lunch down there. Got back here in time to do the radio show. And we're going to talk about a couple things. We'll we'll do a real quick discussion of the uh, the election last night uh, and wrap that up. And then we're going to get on to an interview with my father-in-law who is coming out and visiting us from the East Coast for the next couple months. He's a World War II veteran and a member of the greatest generation. And if you want to get in on the conversation here, you can dial 646-721-9887 and just press 1, and that lets me know you want to get in on the conversation because I'm running the board by myself today. My producer's got a doctor's appointment. And you can also email us at talk at krbnradio.net if you have any suggestions. I won't be able to look at that live today. I've got too many buttons to push as it is uh, being technologically challenged. So obviously the big news of the day is Trump's, uh, win in the election. And, you know, I find it interesting, you know, that they were a little bit perplexed about not quite catching the polling right and all that stuff. And there's a lot of discussion about that. But I was, uh, one statistic from some of the exit polling came up that I think explains how they missed this. And that was, uh, there are a couple groups of people they found, uh, one group that didn't like either candidate, you know, and wasn't pleased with either of the two candidates, and there was another group that answered yes to uh, feeling that neither candidate had the temperament to be president. Of those two groups, over three to one voted for Trump. Now, of those groups of people, if that was your mindset, how would you have answered a political poll? If you didn't like either candidate or you didn't feel either one had the temperament to be the president, you would have probably answered, I'm undecided, or I'm going to vote for a third party candidate. You probably would not have admitted who you're going to vote for. And I think those people decided late and decidedly broke towards Donald Trump and I think that was one of the major differences in, in, the, in the vote. And I have to be honest, I fall into that category of you know being a late decider and just now you know looking at can, can I stomach voting for Donald Trump? And I, and I tell you, what made up my mind was I couldn't stomach the idea of Hillary Clinton appointing Supreme Court justices. Uh, the last debate where she was asked about that, she never mentioned the Constitution in her answer as to what would qualify a Supreme Court justice. So that's kind of my thought about uh, why Trump, you know, cooled the polls. There's one thing I've noticed on on social media day is there's been a lot of folks from uh, that supported Hillary that are accusing every you know the America of being sexist, racist, bigots and ignorant and whatever else you want to say because they voted for Donald Trump and and they can't believe this nation is that way. I want to remind those folks that if you looked at the county by county voting in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, and looked at counties that voted heavily for President Obama in 2008 and 2012 that voted heavily for Donald Trump, in 2016. He flipped those voters from from Obama voters to Trump voters. So if you're going to claim that this is a racist, sexist, bigoted, ignorant nation, then those same voters that elected Donald Trump also elected President Barack Obama. So it's really tough for me to kind of, you know, hear people claim that. It's not really true because a lot of people um, that, you know, Voted for Donald Trump, uh, also voted for President Obama. So pretty hard to call them racist, uh, bigots, and a few other things. So just remember that when you start trying to flip around such large generalities and and make such you know big assumptions about people and how they voted. So locally here, a little bit you know bring it down to the Oregon side. Um, we elected our first statewide Republican in years. Uh, Dennis Richardson won the Secretary of State's race. Um, I think that was just, you know, they nominated the wrong person uh, out of the Democrat Party to, to run that race. Brad Avakian was, is an extremist, uh, is, is ethically challenged, and I think that's why he lost. Had it been either of the other two candidates, it would have been tough for Dennis to win, particularly if it had been Val Hoyle. So. You know, you know, and on the other side of things, I look at you know things like the Senate race where you know, good God, Mark Callahan, um, <laughs> uh, I you know the Republicans nominated the wrong guy there. Somebody, no one would give give a chance. Um, so congratulations to Dennis, very smart man. Uh, I think he will truly be a nonpartisan Secretary of State in in his you know, in his, it, basically in his uh, speech and talk today, he talked about wanting to make it so you couldn't tell what party he was and what party was running uh, the Secretary of State's office. Uh, other things that happened around Oregon, Measure 97 went down in flames. I predicted that. Uh, Governor Kate Brown won. Is there a disconnect here in Oregon where the voters will vote something like Measure 97 down, but a governor's... Candidate that endorsed that measure wins election. Yeah, a little bit of a disconnect there. So, uh, Oregon voters tend to be a little bit uh, on the schizophrenic side. Other than that, yeah, we passed the pot tax here in Lane County. Uh, you know, a few other things interesting. Our low, you know, right here in the Veneta area, our library levy went down. Um, Folks weren't too pleased about all the local gas taxes around around the county. Almost all, all those failed. Um, our fire department merger, though, out here in Rural Lane County passed with flying colors. So, you know, and the West Lane Ambulance District levy passed um, with flying colors. So it wasn't a completely anti-tax um, sort of mood. I think people, you know, looked at each issue individually and things went up and down based on that. So that's kind of my election wrap. I'm not going to spend a long time with that because I'd really like to spend a long time with Lynn Davenport. Um, And and if if you do want to get back to the election stuff or any other topic you have on your mind, feel free to call and interrupt me at 646-721-9887 and punch one on your phone to let me know you want to get in on the conversation. But I'm going to turn to Lynn Wood Davenport, who is my father-in-law and uh, have the honor of having him as a father-in-law. Uh, I didn't know I was getting a World War II veteran when I uh, met his daughter in a bar on the Outer Banks of North Carolina one e- summer evening when I was in college, and she was too. Um, you know, I didn't know who her father was, uh, and frankly, I, w- I wasn't real concerned about that at the time, uh, being a, a young college student uh, working at beach during the summer. But, uh, after you know getting a little bit more serious with Elizabeth and getting to know uh, her dad, I really appreciated um, you know having him as a father-in-law. But it was surprising it wasn't until several years later that I actually learned a lot about Linwood's actual service in World War II because he hadn't really talked to his family about it or any of his friends that I know of until uh, 40 years after the war he started talking about it which I hear from a lot of veterans, uh, tends to be the way they are. They don't really want to talk about their service, um, partly because it was pretty traumatic and partly because a lot of them from that era don't feel that they did anything different than what everyone else did. They don't feel special about it, which is kind of sad because they really, truly did something amazing in winning World War II. Uh, It wasn't wasn't exactly uh, a guaranteed win when the u.s entered into that war germany was doing pretty darn well and had some pretty good weaponry uh, but linwood's part of that that greatest generation and i want to start out with you know before the war you know when Lynn was when Lynn was young um, what was the town in eastern north carolina that that your family farm was located was that kingston
0: near kingston near kingston so what did your family grow? We grew tobacco for our money crop. We grew uh, corn and all of our
1: fruits and vegetables. Yeah, so basically you had a subsistence farm and grew a little tobacco to make extra money. So, you know, you have to remember it. you were born in what 1924? Right, 24. Yep, 1924. So Lynn, uh, you know, his childhood started in the roaring 20s, but as he got older, it became the Great Depression pretty quickly. And uh, early in the Great Depression, your dad and a bunch of your male relatives went off to the tobacco market to sell their tobacco and had, uh, you know, made a little bit of money and were on their way back. And there was a pretty terrible accident uh, on the trip back from the tobacco
0: market. Yeah, the, the truck they were all riding on ran into a ran into a train yeah. on the Atlantic coastline down near Wilmington, North Carolina. Yeah.
1: And
0: the uh, eight people on the truck were killed, including my father, my grandfather, and two, three uncles. Yeah. So, you
1: know, and how old were you when that happened? Nine, nine years old. And how many brothers and sisters did you have at that time?
0: There were seven of us all together. Yeah. And you're the oldest boy, right? I'm the oldest boy. My sister was older than I.
1: Yeah. So at nine years old with six siblings, your mom was left without a husband in the middle of the Great Depression.
0: Seven siblings. Seven, yeah, six, six siblings. Six siblings
1: yeah. So seven all together, yeah. So... Um, your mom tried to stay
0: on the farm for a while, didn't she? We did for a couple of years. We still operated the farm and met our obligation, paid our bills. Mm-hmm.
1: Yep. So, um, with the, you know, there, there's a little story you told me one time about that period where you're still on the farm where your, your mom had an appendicitis or
0: something? She we didn't know what it was. She was she was very sick. And we were my youngest brother and I were the only siblings, the only one kids that were left on the farm at the time. Uh, my mother didn't we had no one close by. There was no telephone, no no uh electric lights. It, it was just a country farm. Mm-hmm. So what I did, we got into the car. It was a 31 Chevrolet, and we drove. I put the dog in the back seat for protection, and we rode two miles to a neighbor, who my mother said could help her relieve the pain of this appendicitis. So I show up at this lady's house at two o'clock in the morning. Nine-year-old kid driving a car. She had, didn't give her a thought. She just came, never get my bag. She went inside, came back with her cabin bag, bag, and climbed in the car, and didn't even bother to consider the fact that she was riding with her kid. So I drove them back to my, to my home, and this lady was able to help my mother ease the pain the next morning she could get a doctor. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a pretty interesting
1: thing for a nine-year-old to have to go through, but it wasn't probably too unusual. So your mom was able to keep all you guys together by, uh, getting a job
0: at an orphanage and moving all of you into the orphanage. She, uh, did later from, from the beginning. My, five of my brothers and sisters, Went to an orphanage in Oxford, North Carolina, and my mother stayed on the farm with my youngest brother and myself, and we still maintained the problems of the farm, and sold sold our tobacco and made made a little bit of money. But my mother, the appendicitis took its toll, mm-hmm. and she she, she uh, we gave it up. Uh, my brother and I, my youngest brother and I, entered the orphanage, and uh, I graduated from there in 1943. Right, And that's kind of where our story of World War II picks
1: up. Um, you graduated in 1943, and shortly after you graduated, you got a letter, didn't you?
0: Yeah, we got a letter from from the U.S. government. It said... Greetings from the President of the United States. You have been chosen by your friends and neighbors to help defend your country. And that was my draft notice. And I transferred my draft board from from Oxford to Alexandria, Virginia, where my mother had moved to. And that draft board in Oxford got credit for me, but... Uh, Alexander Draft Board, the one that did the work, and so I was in the in the army in a short period of time. I had a knuckle as an old army sergeant. He said, "Whatever you do, don't join the Navy." I said, "Why?" He said, "Well, when I was in the in the army, we were in Hong Kong, and I got off the Navy ship, and I was walking up the pier, and I was wobbling so much I couldn't." I find my way up the end of the pier. He said, Don't join the Army. Don't join the Navy. Join the Army. Uh, Fortunately, unfortunately, you had the opportunity to select Army for Army Marines or Coast Guard, Navy. And I, I chose the Army, like my, my Uncle Robert said. And there I was in, in a, on the train going down to Macon, Georgia basic training i didn't know much about anything uncle robert didn't enlighten me in anything only said don't join the navy <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's how i got into the uh, service and 12 weeks in basic training in uh macon camp Wheeler, georgia i i guess you call a graduation day to, Training ended, and I was transferred to Fort George D. Meade, Maryland. No. And Fort Meade, they issued all the new clothes, dressed us up, and then we put back on the train went, We went to Savannah, Georgia, in the middle of the night. We didn't know all the windows on the plane, on the train were darkened couldn't see out in the military secret, but everybody knew where we were. <laughs> so after, after uh, getting out of the this country, they put us on troop ship in Newport, New York, mm-hmm. and we went to Virginia. So you were in
1: basic training in Georgia in, in June and July?
0: June, July and August, nice hot weather.
1: Yeah, I bet that was fun.
0: They had an army officer there. His duties would travel about the country, finding the most miserable place he could get behind to build a camp. <laughs> <laughs> that's what he did. And that's where we ended up.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. So yeah, government is its finest work, or the military is its finest work picking places to have camps uh how old were you when you got your draft notice I was, uh,
0: 18 18. so
1: 18 year old you end up you know first time you really left north carolina was to go up to alexandria to be drafted and then next thing you know you're in georgia in basic training they send you up to fort Meade. they send you back down to savannah and then next thing you know you're getting on a troop ship in newport news uh that's a Pretty, that's a whole lot to happen to an eight-year, 18-year-old
0: all of a sudden. Yeah, after 14 days on the trip ship, uh, I remember the name of it, it was the J.A. Anderson. It took 14 days to get to Casablanca in Morocco. Because so, yeah, it, it went right in a straight line, right? No, it did not. <laughs> the ship changed courses every seven minutes to, to evade potential submarines out there. Yeah. Uh, every seven minutes we changed horses in zigzag. Yep. Yeah. And we ended up in Casablanca like when we were supposed to, I suppose. But um, five or six days in Casablanca, we got on a train called the 40 and 8, 40 men or eight horses. And we went across the northern part of uh, Morocco and into, into uh, Oran, Algiers. Yeah. And in a week or so there, they are back on the troop ship, a Greek ship called the Lea Helena. And three days later, and we were in Naples, Italy. The troop ship could not get to the shore, they had to tie up on sunken vessels in the harbor. So they had a temporary platform across these sunken vessels. That's how we got off the ship. We marched into a, a, a reception depot. It was called the Repa Depa.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And there we were. spent some days of getting new uniforms again. Well, we were always well dressed. <laughs> up to that point, <laughs> that is. Yeah, up yeah, to that point. After that point, uh, no, nothing worked. Yeah.
1: So uh, you, you got taken across the Atlantic. To Morocco took the train across Algiers, get on another boat, you're going to Naples and you get into Naples. And uh, that was after the, the landing at Salerno, timing-wise, in, in the war. And as part of that whole landing, the, the port of Naples had just been bombed to, to
0: Never been pieces.
1: Yeah, by the by the Allies. So there were all those sunken ships, and they actually have catwalk a temporary, you know. Wood, wooden and, and metal platforms to, to link the ships together and you had to walk your way into the shore and get to this this um this repo depot as you call it and and then uh from there they you were they were going to take you guys were, were replacement soldiers that the troops That's you came in with right. yeah trained
0: replacements
1: yeah so they were going to take you and drop you off the various units that you guys were going to be attached to but you and your are we Going back to your training a little bit, you went through your basic training and then you got trained to be, um, to go into an anti-tank battalion.
0: We were trained in Camp Wheeler from a rifle company to the anti-tank, which required a little bit more uh, expertise. Yeah, were.
1: And, and the the you ended up being a gunner.
0: I, was, I had a good score on the range in the making, and uh, like they had the highest in the battalion 300 shooting that gun at a tank gun. Mm-hmm. And so, the, I, my classification was gunner, and I, I didn't know what it was. They told me, I said, You mean I can shoot the big, big artillery guns? No, you can't do that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: you got to shoot the in stateside, you were shooting what a 37 millimeter anti tank gun.
0: The 37, yes. And, and, uh,
1: and then when you got to Italy, you were you were put on a
0: 57, weren't you? Got, and we were assigned to our division, which is another story. Uh, we uh, they they were issued 57 millimeter. The 37 was a pop gun. It, it did not uh, have a lot of firepower. And it certainly had no effect on the German tanks. But the fifty-seven was a little better, so I was we were trained on that in uh, Italy before we were assigned.
1: Yeah. So they 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 uh you took some time in the repo depot, got that training, and then they put you on a truck to take you to your your outfit.
0: We we had a. And there's one guy that I was with in Georgia all the way through, back to the end of the war, uh, he and I were the last to the truck was loaded with replacement. And we went up to the front, the closer we got to the front in the casino, you could hear the artillery going off. and Very demoralizing. We didn't know anything. They didn't tell you anything. We didn't know what outfits we were going to. So... The truck kept stopping there every now and then and letting two or three guys off, and then he would go on to the next stop, next T C P CP, drop two or three guys off. Finally, Daniels and I were the only two left on the truck. And it was dark, the artillery was closer and going off and very demoralizing. But we would sign to this outfit that said come in get off the truck and you go into this farmhouse, German, Italian farmhouse. We did that and inside the farmhouse a group of GI's sitting around a table playing cards and they were arguing about something. And finally one of them said, I've been trying to tell you damn Yankees that Texas is winning the war. And I endeared myself to them. I said, well, I'll be damn glad when I mean, you do. <laughs>
1: It, it, and that turned out to be um part of the uh 134th regiment um uh,
0: the, the uh and, and the tank company of uh, the 143rd 143rd regiment. sorry yeah that's and 143rd was one of the three uh, <laughs> uh regiment in the 36th division yeah so so
1: you're part of that 143rd uh and that and they're from Texas because they're part of the Texas 36th Division Texas
0: 36th Division mobilized around Waco yeah and,
1: um, so so one of the
0: first things
1: that, that they ever heard you say was you'd be damn glad when the Texans win the war <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> they didn't do it for a while <laughs> yeah so so after endearing yourself to your new sergeant um, well they, they just you know they gave you a place to, to to
0: set your tent up and spend the night, or? Yeah, Daniel and I sit with tent basically. We, just, we uh, pitched, he had one half of tent, I had the other half. So we pitched the tent, and the next morning we woke up, got up, and uh, we didn't know what to do. We didn't know anyone, because the night before they didn't take any time to explain anything to us. We were told where the chow line was. We got that in. And he said, today we're going up front. So what does that mean? And they told us where to go, who to do the contact. And that was close by. So we got hooked up and eventually it was our company, our squad, our platoon and our squad. And then that, that, that night we started up at the front
1: yeah. So, by then, had you turned 19 by then? Yes. Yeah. So, so here, you're, you're, you're 19, uh, you you graduated high school, you, you got talked into joining the army by your uncle after, you're dra- after you got drafted, you go through training, you get made a gunner, you get sent across the ocean, you show up in, in, in Naples that's been bombed out, you get trucked up to the front in the dark, you spend the night in a tent with your one buddy from, from basic training, and they send you to, to to the front line that next day. And that particular uh, battle they sent you to was the first time they tried to cr- cross the uh, Rapido River there uh, next to the town of Casino. Is that, is that
0: correct? That's correct. So the Rapido comes around Mount Cairo and is a photo of Mount Cairo. And uh it's not it's, it's a real river, it's not much of a river. Yeah. But we found out two days later that there was a lot more to it than uh the original bargain for. Yeah, yeah.
1: And that and for folks that don't know that, that the that particular battle is pretty famous because it was overlooked by Monte Casino, which is uh the uh Historic um, Benedict Abbey, yeah, Benedict Abbey that was up on the hill that uh, the Allies were concerned that the Germans were using as a spotting post. After after quite a bit of time, finally made a, a very controversial decision to bomb the Abbey and uh, bomb the, the hell out of it. And what was kind of you know 2020 hindsight after the war, they found out the Germans weren't using it because they kind of were holding to the thing of not using historic places like that but after it got bombed they did move in and start using this as a spotting uh, site because at that point it was rubble um, but talk about that 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 first time going down to the front um you know because you guys had a pretty tough time you went down there your your company had
0: three trucks and two yeah. jeeps we had Three trucks with uh, three guns. The 57 millimeter was too big for these jeeks. They had bigger trucks. Doug died a Dodge ton and a half. Mm-hmm. And we went down into an old German, an old Italian farmhouse that made us our local C.P. command post. And it had dark that day at night. <laughs> We all went down to the river, about half a mile down from this farmhouse, to dig in the truck, to dig in the gun, dig in yourself. And uh, I mean, dig, dig, dig. Uh, because the next day they had planned to cross the river. Uh, our entire regiment, 143rd, got shot up pretty bad. I mean my company, was uh, 140-some men got shot up badly. We went up there in three trucks and pulling three guns and we had two Jeeps. We came back about 30 days later and one Jeep and 12 men. Wow. That's, that's
1: you know, pretty heavy casualties. And, and pretty heavy loss. Um, you, were, you told me a story one time about that that early engagement. There was a particular uh, artillery bombardment where where a shell landed pretty close to you and didn't didn't hurt you, but hurt the you know uh, killed the guy on the other side of you. Uh, and you kind of knew that you were going to survive the war. Then or something.
0: I, I would i was ghosting yeah i made this one i'm gonna make this war yeah but uh the artillery bar- when we started down the river to dig in we waited not long enough on this sh- in, in the italian farmhouse we they could still see us i that, we, we said Monte casino mm-hmm. and uh they could still see it they put an artillery barrage you know and us. The- and you might have heard it referred to the German gun, the 88. Mm-hmm. And it was very accurate and very powerful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The shell hit next to me. And I always figured out that the concussion that shell went over me. Because I was as low as you could get. <laughs> yeah, very short, huh? Very, very short. And he killed a boy from Baltimore. And we got it hmm
1: Was that the first casualty you saw? That was the first casualty, first, yes. Yeah, but it was just kind of an amazing thing that the shell landed on one side of you and killed the guy that was on the opposite side of you, but didn't hurt you. And you kind of, kind of thought that it, there was something, something protecting you or something that was looking over you. Something was looking after me. Yeah. So that was quite an engagement uh, and you guys, you know, anyone that's studied a lot of history understands, you know, the, the general that was over top of, of the the uh, ally, the, the Americans, um, Italian campaign there, made some huge mistakes in trying to push across the Rapido River where he chose to get across it and all that was just really strategically poorly planned. And you guys got the crap shot out of you so after 30 days you guys pull back did you get some replacements and then go back on the line again
0: record again we went back to angio mm-hmm. in the meantime from casino uh angio had happened mm-hmm. and we were, we were part of the breakout of angio
1: yeah so you and, kind of got pulled off the line there casino got moved to angio and if, and if you know Anzio was a beachhead that was meant to try and distract the Germans away from Casino. It didn't really work well. They kind of stopped them on the beach, and it was stuck. You know, there were all these troops in a very small beachhead getting pounded regularly by the Germans, artillery. And your guys came in as reinforcements and were actually the lead um, regiments that went up, and if anyone uh, has read about the breakout of Anzio, it happened at night, where they sent uh, at kind of like an end-around play, where they sent the, the 143rd and some other regiments of the Texas 36 up the backside of a mountain with bulldozers in front of the trucks, cutting roads, and uh, went around the German line, sort of, and, and and broke and broke out the beachhead, and that's what led ultimately to the capture of Rome. And, and you talk about going up that hill in the middle of the night.
0: So, that was scary also. <laughs> but uh, the Germans were more frightened than we were because they were running. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it, it,
1: people forget both sides are pretty scared. <laughs> the,
0: the, the next day, June the 4th, the day after my birthday, June the 5th, uh, we got into Rome. Mm-hmm. And we went through to Rome, big traffic jam, and went to the American Embassy on a sign and they put up by the, on the American Embassy door while this was taken by the Canadians. <laughs> we never let that one down. The Canadians uh, beat us to it. We paved the way for them. Yeah, yeah.
1: If it hadn't been for you guys going out there in the middle of the night and getting up the the mountain, uh, they would they'd still be they, they, the Canadians would still be on the beachhead, not in Rome. So was Rome a kind of a a, a wild scene going through Rome? We, we,
0: we were welcomed adequately. Uh, did you
1: did you have any girls kiss you?
0: Everybody got kissed.
1: <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I imagine that was a pretty wild scene. And, uh, you know, so after Rome, you guys went a little bit further up Italy and then got pulled off to to prepare for the other D-Day.
0: We didn't know at the time what it was all about. We went up as far as uh, the university town of Mm Grossetta. And then we were relieved and pulled pulled back down to everybody. Mark Clark, the commanding general of the Fifth Army, he always said that he, every man is going to have a pass to Rome. And he didn't say how short that pass was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> so but we had a pass to Rome, and from there we went down to Baxter to Laramel for amphibious training for the invasion of southern France. Yeah. D Day Southern France, August 15, 1944. Uh, we... Hit the beach at San Rafael, vale, on the Riviera, where what was a vacation spot.
1: Yeah, there weren't, there weren't any topless bathing duties on nothing, the beach at, of at, that day, huh?
0: Nothing of interest. Yeah. And then,
1: uh, you know, Mark Clark, you know, in another one of his missed decisions there, it could have been, it, it entrapped a lot of the German army if he moved a little faster,
0: but got cautious. But well, he, Mark Clark, his defense was not the commanding general then, because yeah. he came from the Fifth Army, Mark Clark was commander. Yeah. But for southern France, the rest of the war, the Seventh Army. Ah. It was in the patch.
1: Yeah, but we missed an opportunity to trap a major force of the Germans if we just the, kept
0: moving. The German 19th Army was yeah. coming in from Bordeaux. And they couldn't get across their own river because that blew the Guga bridges.
1: Yeah. So that 19th Army managed to escape, and then you guys ended up facing some of them in in uh, in the Bosage Mountains and around the Colmar po- pocket.
0: We sure did. If we would have cut them off, and, and uh, when we sure could have, it made a big difference. Yeah. But really, uh, we, we didn't cut them off. And Decided to come through. The 11th Panzer Division decided they were going to come through our line. And they they, they did. They came up in, in the dark. And we took our guns and put them in position. And when tanks were getting close, you could hear them real easy. My, the tune sergeant, the tune, he said, Just, I'm going to tell you when to shoot. So we had rolled the gun into a ditch, and the barrel was traversing the the uh, ground. He said, "When you shoot, I'm gonna tell you pull the trigger right then." So the tank got right in front of us. He told you, "I didn't know." He said, "Shoot!" And I did. And you can see the tracer that, that going right over that tank, just missing about six, eight inches. Yeah,
1: and the tank was. Pretty close,
0: right? He was—he was very close, too close for comfort.
1: So you guys bugged out of there pretty quick.
0: <laughs> they vacated. Yeah. And is that when? Uh, was that the particular action where you got your Bronze Star? That was Bronze Star came later.
1: Later? Yeah. So um, you tell one story though about being on on the line there, kind of close to the German border in in France. Uh, in France or Germany, I can't remember where you guys have gotten into Germany yet, where they, they had a little uh, interesting story with a, a bridge and all that were, had been landmined and, and uh,
0: Oh, a horse and cart? I know what you're talking about now. We were in gun position uh, on, on a major road and we were going to spend the night there and the next day move on. So it was about dark, We heard this awful noise. We didn't know what it was. We found out later it was a horse-drawn wagon that had the German chow on it. And that chow consisted of bags, burlap bags of potatoes and burlap bags of turnips. And they had that with some sort of a margarine-like substance. That was their diet. Anyway, that wagon the horse got frightened with artillery going around him, and he took off down the road, ran right through our minefield. Didn't touch a mine. Got about a mile back behind the line where the regiment CP was, and our captain was there. And he said, called on the telephone, said, "Why didn't you say whoa?" because <laughs> you got your company with
1: ahead had good eating
0: or better really good,
1: yeah so uh yes yeah, so that's uh, uh you know interesting that, you know that horse managed to miss all those mines and it's just one of those things in the middle of war one of those yeah,
0: guys that's poor our minefield was
1: yeah. <laughs> or how lucky that horse was uh so uh you guys ended up uh getting into southern germany
0: ultimately yeah we fought we up the uh river and the crossovers in the town of worms worms they call it mm-hmm. and uh that's where i got wounded uh, i've been going through the war all of that time okay to this little country town but uh that was uh another story yeah and we got it down to Munich in Germany in Bavaria. And yeah, came across this concentration camp, but we didn't know what it was.
1: Uh, one of the first ones they found, wasn't
0: it? One, one of the first. That had hundreds and hundreds of corpse stacked up like cordwood in long rows. I don't have any idea how many people were there. They were all dead and sadly uh, in sad shape.
1: Yeah, and the, the surviving folks in that concentration camp, you know, look look like skeletons. What what did they ask the, G, the GIs for when you guys showed up?
0: They were walking skeletons, walking along, and we were trying to, we, we didn't have enough food to feed them, and I Right that moment the next day we would have but one of the things we could can we do a name for you if you got a cigarette yeah they yeah
1: they all, all wanted cigarettes
0: they wanted the puffs so we did we got rid of our cigarettes
1: yeah that's sad and and eisenhower came to the camp after you guys liberated
0: it right eisenhower wanted everybody in his command to see this un- this sight of dead people these corpse lined up stacked up like like bailing wire and mean, just, just yeah it's a sad sight
1: yeah just stacked up like firewood underneath the shed except for right out in the open
0: out in the open long with long trenches if we'd been another couple of days later they'd have had the trench filled in we wouldn't have found them yeah
1: so um you know, when you hear people talk about you know these folks that denied there was ever a Holocaust.
0: And believe me, there was a Holocaust. Yeah, it's uh, the way the disrespect they had of the people.
1: Yeah, That just sounds sounds like a horrible sight to come upon, and and you know you said you thought you saw Eisenhower crying when he was there.
0: He, he was weapon to face. Yeah.
1: That was the only time you saw Ike during the war, wasn't it? No, he, he was in England. <laughs> no, I, 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 I
0: didn't see him anymore.
1: Yeah. So, you know, not too long after that, you know, we finally got DE Day. And, yeah. and uh, you ended up uh, guarding a, a, a a jet factory
0: plant or something it was an underground factory that was building jet planes and so instead of shooting germans we were guarding them mm-hmm. So we did that till the end of hostilities yeah so
1: you had a, a little funny uh, story while you were guarding that that area because it was a pretty big Area that, that this forest was over top of, right?
0: A bunch was, of roads, A lot of highways in there, there were asphalt roads in there. And we, we were bored. Mm-hmm. And one of the guys came with a Jeep and we saw a deer. They chased the deer down with the Jeep, we shot him with a Tommy gun. A real sportsmen.
1: <laughs> yeah. And
0: I think you also had a little motorcycle incident there, too, didn't you? We we had a motorcycle accident. Yeah. I never rode a motorcycle before, and our lieutenant never had the other one either. So we were on these motorcycles, and we met coming towards each other and got to zigzagging. And he had a trail on one side of the road, and I hit one on the other, and and we gave up motorcycles.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so, uh, and you've probably have never ridden one since. But, yeah, so you finally, uh, hostilities end and all that stuff, and by then um, you were a sergeant, weren't
0: you? Yeah, I was I was a tech sergeant. Mm-hmm. The captain came in one, one when were, we were doing occupational duty in a town called Ewing Gun. He came in and he said, i got to have a first sergeant. I said, well, go find one. <laughs> He said, I found one. He said, you're my first sergeant. I said, I'm just a kid. You got these old Texans out there I'm supposed to put order around. He said, go ahead. eat yours. You'll, you'll be my new first sergeant. Oh, well,
1: that, that's great. I'm glad. I'm, I was kind of glad he made you first sergeant. Um, so... first sergeant, and then how old were you at that time?
0: As 19. 19? 19, 20, 20? 20 years, yeah,
1: 20. You were 20? Yeah. So, get drafted when you're 18, turn 19 shortly thereafter, fight in some of the biggest battles in, in Southern Europe, through Italy and, and France, liberate a concentration camp, make first sergeant by the time you're 20, I a pretty fast and wild, young, you know, younger years. You ended up getting uh, rotated home though, pretty pretty well, because you built up a few credits, at, didn't you?
0: I had 83 points. Yeah, and you needed 80, I think, to be early discharge.
1: Yeah,
0: and, and so you
1: you get sent back to London. You got to spend a little time in London, but you get back to America, and they and they, they they uh rotate you out through Fort Meade,
0: don't they? Yeah, I came back to this country on a ship called Bardstown Victory by name for Bardstown, Kentucky. And went into Staten Island, New York. It mm-hmm. <clears throat> Took about two weeks to get, get out get get across the ocean. And on, on the train from Staten Island to to uh, a fareboat at the course there. To Georgia City, down to Camp Kilmer, New Jersey. And from there to Fort Meade, Maryland. And that's where I was discharged from in November 1946. Something like that. Yep.
1: And basically, you had to catch a bus to go home?
0: Yes. I, I didn't have, I had change. <laughs> yeah. But I, I walked out of the gate of Fort Meade and I caught the bus. Or downtown Washington they called Mother Bus. to Alexandria.
1: Where your mother's house was.
0: And then that was parade.
1: yeah And and no parades, no nothing special. You just came home. And then you um, were gonna use you used it you were going started to go back to, to college under the GI Bill. Yes. And then and then you ended up quitting school so you could put your, your younger brothers all through school. And and you used your GI benefits to buy your mother's home for for the family rather than than the rent the home that they they were in
0: that's what i'm doing
1: yeah so from you know from a tobacco and vegetable farm in eastern north carolina and 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 losing your dad at age nine and your mom suffering appendicitis and all that uh, being drafted getting back from the war with no parades or anything like that you end up uh Quitting school to, to work to help get all of your brothers through school, um, and uh, ultimately went to work for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Yes, and worked 33 years there. Yes. Yeah, and then uh, worked uh, another 10 years for the Delaware Department of Agriculture.
0: Another seven
1: seven years, yeah, and then worked uh, in, in the for private agriculture. Farms for a while, uh, the taking Farms in Delaware. Um, you know, never, you know, and then never having told some of these stories to your family for forty some years. You know, that not they 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 didn't know what you would actually done in the war. Um, it it's just so typical of everyone I've talked to that's a World War II vet, and and it's because you don't think you did anything special, do you? survived you survived yeah but in in the your whole generation in their drive to survive and all that liberated europe from fascism uh set us up to be able to defend ourselves against the uh the the communist socialist bloc of the soviet union and then came home no parades, no nothing. They just kind of let you out of, of the gates of Fort Meade. Uh, if you started to use the GI Bill um, to go to school but then dropped out to work, you know, and you worked as a bus driver too, didn't you?
0: Yeah, the only two that was regularly handy was on a streetcar bus in, in DC.
1: Yeah.
0: So I was a bus driver for five yeah. years before I uh Went to work for a USDA,
1: yeah, but put put your younger siblings through school and then uh and bought your mom a house and uh she lived there for a long time too, yes, because my uh, your your daughter Elizabeth, my wife, um, remembers fondly spending time at, at that house with, with, yeah, your in, with your mother
0: in Alexandria. Andrea.
1: yep, so uh just kind of an amazing story of you know one person that exemplifies what what Peter Jennings dubbed the greatest generation Uh, I know that it's you know you wear your World War II veteran um, baseball cap you know when when we fly together on the plane and all that stuff and I know it embarrasses you when people thank you for your service but uh, you know I, I you, you deserve those thanks because you didn't get them in 1946 when you got off, got outside the gates of Fort Meade, and you had to bum a ride and, and up on a bus to get back to back home. Um, and, I, and we learned after Vietnam how destructive it was to not thank people for their service. And I think the nation's done done a lot better with that. Uh, anything else about your your you know, we we have Veterans Day coming up on Friday, and and uh, you know we've got lots of veterans, you know that that now are coming out of Iraq and Afghanistan, and who knows, there might be guys in Syria and Libya and other places now uh, around the world. Um, anything that that you want to tell the folks of America about,
0: you know, you know. Well, one of the things I did, I did two years ago, I was down marshal for the Veterans Day Parade in Florence. Mm-hmm. And it, it made me appreciate those people that came out with, uh, waving at the participants in, in the parade, and reading us and wishing us well. Uh, that was uh, making up for lost time. Yeah, yeah. And locally,
1: um, we have, uh, you know, where we, we bring veterans back to D.C. to see their monuments and all that stuff. They're kind of running out of World War II veterans to bring that back, and they're starting to do Korean War and Vietnam War veterans. But uh, you you don't live too far from there, but you did, you did get to visit the World War II Memorial Yes. No, not in DC.
0: I'm in the the first, Delaware is in the first uh, monument after World War II. And I'm one of the first names in the book that registered as a member of the Delaware military. Yeah.
1: Well, Lynn, I just, you know, thank you for your service. And uh, I want to take a moment to thank all the veterans uh, and currently serving um, folks in the armed services uh, for their service to this country uh, with Veterans Day coming up. So I have a few minutes left in the Bo's Nose Show here. So if you want to call in, if you have a question for Lynn uh, or myself or anything else you want to talk about, you can dial 646-721-9887 just press one if you want to get in on on the conversation. But uh, you know, been kind of a little bit of a special show. We started talking about the the you know the election, and we have to appreciate the fact that we have peaceful transitions of power in the United States of America, unlike you know what's happened in the past with revolutions and wars and everything else. Uh, and, and we should appreciate that. And one of the reasons we have that is the veterans that have served. So on Friday, uh, don't think of it as just another day off of work. Um, take a few minutes to, to think about those who served our country. And um, you know, if you can get a chance to get out to a parade and wave at some of the vets in the parade, you heard Lynn talk about how much he appreciated that when he got a chance to be one of the honorary grand marshals down there in Florence when they had uh, World War II vets as their grand marshals that year. Uh, We're going to try and get down to the the Florence Veterans Parade. It's this Friday and uh, you know maybe we'll see some of you there and uh, you know just take a few minutes thank a veteran. Uh, I want to thank all the veterans out there and uh, you know, it kind of makes some of, you know, listening to Lynn's story, it makes some of the things that we argue about and the pettiness, you know, about who might have said something about, you know, women in the past, emails and servers and all that stuff seem pretty inconsequential. Uh, when you think about a, an 18-year-old kid that gets drafted, sent to the, the Georgia in the summertime, ends up Going to the front lines on his first day just about and uh, you know, being in some horrific battles uh, helping liberate a concentration camp and all the various things that happen along the way. And I think about how easy my life is in comparison and and even after all that he comes back and chooses to serve his siblings by working that you know working helping pay for their school instead of going to school himself. So, so we'll see you next week, and uh, have a great day and a good night. We'll talk to you later.